From Astoria to the Rockaways, it's time for the Queen's New Yorker. And here is the man giving you all the info, your uber snazzy and jazzy host, Mr. Jason DeCanio! Yeah! All right! Happy Thanksgiving, everybody! Thank you, Jason Kelly! Oh, wow, what a group. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Oh, Oh, yeah. Thank you. Oh, happy Turkey Day to everybody here. And once again, thank you very much for joining us here on the Queens, New Yorker. I am, of course, Jason DeCanio, your genial host and moderator for this next episode here. Episode number 190. That's right. We are 190 episodes in, 10 away from 200. And today we're going to be looking at a very special Thanksgiving episode. We were going to be talking about Carvel coming up in the next uh, Carvel Ice Cream, Mr. Softy. We're going to be doing a lot of name brand stuff because that's what we resort to. So today on our Thanksgiving episode, because today is Thursday, November 25th, 2021, we're going to be looking at two very vital things that make Thanksgiving a staple. The Butterball Turkey and Stovetop Stuffing. Yeah, (laughs) there you go. (laughs) You can't get any better than that, you know? I tell you. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Should be very interesting. Very, very interesting. All right. So, (laughs) I I think without further ado, I think we should just jump right in and start carving this bad boy up. So, let's do that right now. We're going to be looking at Butterball Turkey first, and here we go. It's a brand of turkey and other poultry products produced by Butterball LLC. Uh, Jay Janarin is the president and CEO. Their headquarters is actually in Garner, North Carolina, if you like to know, and they've been fa- they were founded in 2006, which actually is kind of weird because you would have think they were more, uh, much older than that, but... They go beyond that. It's actually Maxwell Farms and Seaborn Board Corporation. Those are the those are the um, the original owners. The company manufactures food products in the United States and internationally, specializing in turkey, cured deli meats, raw roasts, and specialty products such as soups and salads and sandwiches and entrees. You know, Butterball LLC was a joint venture of Smithfield Foods and Maxwell Farms, Inc., an affiliate of the Goldsboro Milling Company. Seaboard Corporation bought Smithfield's stake in Butterball in 2010, and the company sells over 1 billion pounds of turkey a year. And though the Butterball brand has been formally recognized since 1940, the LLC wasn't formed in... Uh, it was formed in 2006, so the company goes back as far as 1940. In Canada, the rights to Butterball are owned by Exceldor Foods Ltd. So they have a lot of stuff. According to Butterball, the following products are sold under their name. Whole turkeys, turkey cuts, whole cuts, sausage, turkey bacon, medallion strips, chicken strips, turkey franks, ground turkey, 
frozen turkey burgers, mignons, meatballs, corn dogs, any among numerous other brands, English bread, butterball turkeys are sold in the United Kingdom during Christmas time for the Christmas feast. So let's look at this delicious history of this interesting company. So in 1951, Leo Peters, an employee of the Chicago meat processor Swift & Company, produced a trademark for Butterball from an Ohio woman who owned it since 1940. According to Peters' son, uh, Peters wasn't sure exactly what he used it for. But in 1954, Peters trimmed, dressed, and fast-froze turkeys they were patented under the name Butterball Turkey. According to Butterball's website, Butterball received its name from the broad breast and plump round shape of the turkey. Peters licensed the Butterball name to Swift for 10 years before selling it to them in the 1960s, which was acquired by ConAgra in 1990. Now, Leo Peters retained rights to use the name Butterball Farms for his butter products, and the company operates today as Butterball Farms, Inc., founded in 1950s as Peter's Pack. They're producing and marketing shaped butter products. Now, in October of 2006, Conagra's Butterball branded turkey business was sold to North Carolina-based Carolina Turkeys, making Carolina Turkey the largest turkey producer in the United States. The company, located southeast of Raleigh, North Carolina, in Mount Olive, North Carolina, on the Wayne and Dublin County line, subsequently renamed itself Butterball LLC. Now, in 2008, the company moved its headquarters to a new $12 million building in Greenfield North of off of Interstate 40 in Garner, North Carolina. The headquarters has a customer experience center with a special kitchen for promotional demonstrations. Smithfield offered $200 million to Maxwell Farms for the portion of Butterball that Smithfield did not own. Chief Executive C. Larry Pope said that at the time that he hoped Maxwell Farms would spend more on the company's facilities and marketing. A decision had to be made whether to buy Maxwell's share or sell Smithfield's. Now, on September 10, 2010, Smithfield announced the sale of its 49% share of Butterball for an estimated $175 million. Maxwell Farms will sell 50% of Butterball to Seaboard Corporation. Walter Gator Pelletier, past chairman of the National Turkey Federation, is Butterball's LLC's corporate secretary, managing all operating activities from turkey production and directing Maxwell Farms, the managing partner of Butterball. Pelletier is also president of Maxwell Farms, Inc., vice president of Goldsboro Milling Company, and secretary treasurer of Maxwell Foods, Inc. Pelletier had joined Goldsboro Milling Company in 1981. Now, beginning in late 1981, Butterball has maintained a toll-free telephone line called the Turkey Talk Line <laughs> to help customers with cooking and preparation questions. 11,000 people called in 1981, and in recent years, the number has grown to over 200,000 each holiday season. The most frequent question asked is how long a turkey takes to defrost. Well, in the West Wing episode, The Indians in the Lobby, President Josiah Bartlett calls the number, referred to as the Butterball Hotline in the script, to discuss stuffing and cooking his Thanksgiving turkey while trying to avoid revealing his identity to the operator voiced by an uncredited Anna Gasteyer. And in 2013, the talk line began employing men, and the company noted that one quarter of the calls came from men. That's true. 
Animal rights activists such as Mercy for Animals, the Humane Society of the United States, and PETA, which is P-E-T-A, have accused Butterball of animal cruelty. And these organizations cite intentional cruelty inflicted on the birds as well as the incidental cruelty inherent in the slaughter methods used and the breeding practices which produce animals too large to reproduce without human intervention. In October 2012, a Mercy for Animals investigator documented a pattern of abuse and neglect at numerous butterball turkey operations in North Carolina. The investigation revealed workers kicking and stomping on birds, dragging them by their wings and necks and throwing turkeys onto the ground or on top of other birds. Birds suffering from serious untreated illnesses and injuries, including open sores, infections, and broken bones, and workers grabbing birds by their wings or necks and violently slamming them into tiny transport crates with no regard for their welfare. This investigation occurred less than one year after a Mercy for Animals undercover investigation into a different Butterball turkey facility led to five workers being charged with criminal cruelty to animals. Mercy for Animals 2011 investigation at a Butterball turkey factory farm in Shannon, Hoke County, North Carolina, revealed Butterball workers violently, violently kicking and stomping on birds, dragging them by their wings and necks, slamming them into transport crates, and leaving turkeys to suffer from serious, untreated injuries and infections. Well, as a result of the investigation, North Carolina officials raided the facility and arrested several employees. Hmm. And in August of 2012, butterball worker Brian Douglas pleaded guilty to felony cruelty to animals, marking the first ever felony conviction for cruelty to factory farm birds in United States history. Several days later, another butterball employee, Ruben Mendoza, pleaded guilty to misdemeanor cruelty to animals and felony identity theft. February of 2013, two more Butterball workers, Terry Johnson and Billy McBride, were found guilty of misdemeanor animal cruelty as a result of F MFA's investigation. Well, in addition to the felony and misdemeanor cruelty convictions, the Mercy for Animals investigation at Butterball uncovered government corruption. And Dr. Sarah Jean Mason, the Director of Animal Health Programs with the North Carolina Department of Agriculture, was arrested and pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice charges for after admitting to warning Butterball about the raid by law enforcement and potentially compromising the criminal cruelty investigation. But on the lighter side, the Butterball will always be, hands down, the top turkey that we, as Americans, can remember by. And that is a look at Butterball Turkey. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, nicely done. Well, now, what goes better than uh, with a butterball turkey than some stovetop stuffing? And we're going to be talking about stovetop stuffing right now on this next part of the Queens New Yorkers Thanksgiving edition. So I hope you're enjoying your Thanksgiving and getting some great ideas. 
And if you're cooking Thanksgiving turkey at the time of this recording, hey, you might be interested to note that it takes, I hope you defrosted your turkey according to the package directions, okay? So let's look at stovetop stuffing that it was introduced by General Foods in 1972. It is a quick cooking instant stuffing that is available in supermarkets. And unlike traditional stuffing, stovetop can be prepared on the stove in a pot and can also be prepared in a microwave oven. It is used as a side dish for meals, as well as a medium in which some meats, pork, chicken, can be baked. It is sold in boxes and canisters. 2005, it was reported that Kraft Heinz, which has owned the brand since 95, sells about 60 million boxes of stovetop stuffing at Thanksgiving. Think about that. 60 million boxes on top of what we as Americans already buy during the week or any other given regular day of the year. 60 million just at Thanksgiving alone. Well, Ruth Symes was the home economist who first created the product. Her name was the first listed on the United States patented uh, 3,870,803 for the product. Her patent was based on a certain size of breadcrumb that makes the rehydration or addition of water work. Now, in an interview with Evansville Courier in 1991, uh, Seams said the idea for the instant stuffing came from the marketing department, but it was up to the research and development staff to create the product. The test kitchens, the chefs, and all the workers in research and development were given an opportunity to develop the stuffing, but Sims' idea was the one the company chose. The product originated with an idea from Jack Kling of the marketing department for a stuffing-flavored rice, and after that show promised into the Sims' developed breadcrumb-based dish we came to know as stovetop stuffing. And, of course, there are a variety of flavors, including chicken, lower sodium, cornbread, pork, beef, savory herbs, traditional sage, tomato and onions, San Francisco sourdough, mm, mushroom and onion, long grain and wild rice, and roasted garlic, turkey, apple, and cranberry. 60 million. That's a lot. So the next time you're thinking about, a, you know, and if you ever see those pantries where they give those Thanksgiving harvest baskets, what's the one thing that you notice that's in those in the in those baskets? Stovetop stuffing, obviously, right? There you have it, folks. A little brief history of stovetop stuffing, right here on the Queens New Yorker. Let's see if we can. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm glad you're enjoying this mouth-watering Thanksgiving episode here. Let's take a look at um, one more look at um, uh, something that is synonymous with Thanksgiving. And um, we all like pumpkin pie. I, I do. I like a pecan pie as well. Um, but uh, when you think of uh, Mrs. Smith's pies, th that goes far and beyond what we have called, you know, but it doesn't have, uh, <laughs> interesting. There's not any one particular recipe for it. Everybody has a list or a, or, or a favorite pumpkin pie. I mean, if you make homemade pumpkin pie, it's really good. I mean, store-bought. Um, but I've had a Mrs. Smith's pumpkin pie before, and it's really good. I've had uh, Entenmann's, which is delicious. 
I love Entenmann's. Um, any kind of pumpkin pie you can think of, whether you buy it in the bakery or you make it yourself, pumpkin pie is a staple. And, um, you know, the history is, is that the pumpkin is native to the continent of North America. So the pumpkin was an early export to France. From there, it was introduced to Tudor England, and the flesh of the pompion was quickly accepted as a pie filler. So during the 17th century, pumpkin pie recipes could be found in English cookbooks such as Hannah Woolley's The Gentlewoman's Companion. Pumpkin pies made by early American colonists were more likely to be a savory soup made and served in a pumpkin than a sweet custard in a crust. It was not until the early 19th century that the recipes appeared in Canadian and American cookbooks where pumpkin pie became a common addition to the Thanksgiving dinner. The pilgrims brought the pumpkin pie back to New England, while the English method of cooking the pumpkin took a different course. So in the 19th century, the English pumpkin pie was prepared by stuffing the pumpkin with apples, spices, and sugar, and then baking it whole. So in the United States, after the Civil War, the pumpkin pie was resisted in southern states as a symbol of Yankee culture imposed on the South, where there was no tradition of eating pumpkin pie. Many southern cooks instead made sweet potato pie, or added bourbon and pecans to give a southern touch. Today, throughout much of Canada and the United States, it is traditional to serve pumpkin pie after Thanksgiving dinner. Additionally, many modern companies produce seasonal pumpkin pie-flavored products, such as candy, cheesecake, coffee, ice cream, French toast, waffles, and pancakes, and many breweries produce a seasonal pumpkin ale or beer. These are generally not flavored with pumpkins, but rather pumpkin pie spices. Commercially made pumpkin pie mix is made from curcubita pepo, which is, or um, Libby Select uses the Select Dickinson pumpkin variety of C. Moshada for its canned pumpkins. So they, they call it curcubita uh, maxima or curcubita moshada. Uh, pumpkin pies were briefly discouraged from Thanksgiving dinners in 1947 as part of a rationing campaign, mainly because of the eggs in the recipe. So here are, <laughs> here are some interesting poetry and songs in the pop culture world for pumpkin pie. Lydia Maria's Child's A Thanksgiving Poem Over the River and Through the Woods references pumpkin pie in one of its verses. Hurrah for the fun is the pudding done. Hurrah for the pumpkin pie. John Greenleaf Whittier wrote it in his poem The Pumpkin in 1850, quote, Ah, on thanks day... When from east and from west, from north and from south comes the pilgrim and guest. When the great-haired New Englander sees round his board the old broken links of affection restored, when the care-wearied man seeks his mother once more, and the worn matron smiles where the girl smiled before, what moistens the lip and what brightens the eye, what calls back the past like a rich pumpkin pie. <laughs> Yep, and then there are songs to go with it, as Oscar Ferdinand Telgman and George Frederick Cameron wrote the song Farewell, O Fragrant Pumpkin Pie in the opera Leo the Royal Cadet. There's also the Christmas theme song, There's No Place Like Home for the Holidays, which makes a reference to homemade pumpkin pie being looked forward to by a man returning to his family's home in Pennsylvania. Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree contains the lyric, later we'll have some pumpkin pie and we'll do some caroling. And Sleigh Ride, another popular Christmas song, also mentions sitting around a fire after being out in the snow and eating pumpkin pie. 
The world's largest pumpkin pie was made in New Bremen, Ohio at the New Bremen Pumpkin Fest. It was created on September 25th, 2010. The pie consisted of 550 kilograms of canned pumpkin, 410 liters of evaporated milk, 2,796 eggs, 3.2 kilograms or 7 pounds of salt, uh, 14.5 pounds of cinnamon, 525 pounds of sugar, The final pie weighed 3,699 pounds and measured 20 feet in diameter. Diameter. Wow. Whoa. (laughs) That is one big pie. Oh, boy. So, speaking of which, I got one more to go here. Let's look at Libby's canned, um, canned pie. And see if there is a history on this. There should be. I don't know if it is, but we'll check. If not, we will. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, yes, Libby's. Okay. Now, big name. I don't know. Let's see. They go back as far as 1875. They started canning. Uh, let's see. They were also big on the Illinois pumpkin farms. Now, they're Seneca Foods. But they got to go. They got a good history. The company was founded as Libby McNeil and Libby in Chicago, Illinois, by Archibald McNeil and the brothers Arthur and Charles Libby. Now, the business began with a canned meat product, beef and brine or corned beef. And the product became well known when the company began to package the meat in a trapezoid shaped can starting in 1875. But by 1880, it had 1500 employees in Chicago. Yep. They were also acquired by Nestle in 1970. <clears throat> Nestle introduced <coughs> that's when Juicy Juice came out in 77. Libby's Juicy Juice. Yes, big stuff. Um, so they also had a pumpkin shortage in 2009, which is why there was a shortage of Libby's pumpkin pie filling. Yeah, that could be that 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 could happen to you when you're when you're trying to get canned uh, pumpkin in a can. But whatever you're doing for it, these are fine products and fine companies that have stood the test of time. We thank them, and we thank you for another great Thanksgiving edition here on the Queen's New Yorker. Yes. Thank you again for joining us here on our Thanksgiving edition, episode 190. Next time on our show, 191, we'll look at, of course, what we intended on looking at. Carvel, ice cream, it'll be the ice cream program, Mr. Softy, all kinds of ice cream, Briars, Baskin Robbins. It's going to be the ice cream show of a century. We're in our food series, as you know, in the Queens, New Yorker, so... This is a continuation of it. Happy Thanksgiving from all of us here at the Queens New Yorker and on Spotify and, of course, Mixcloud and all the shows that you follow along with us here. Remember, folks, be honest, be real, keep it simple, stupid. On the Queens New Yorker, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. You have been watching the Queens New Yorker. This is Jason Kelly on a Jason DeCanio Internet presentation. Thank you for your support.